Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. Well, good morning, everybody. If you've got a Bible, would you grab it? And for those who are new, what book of the Bible were we in? Mark, that's right. We'll be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, where we're going to be looking at an incredible mountaintop experience this morning. Uh, Have you ever had one of these? Yes. Um, for, for those that haven't, uh, I'm, I'm talking about a moment in life where uh, everything just suddenly becomes clearer, where you uh, get out and you get some perspective and you can see uh, from a new height and it puts your life in new perspective and it really rearranges uh, what you see in your entire life. Uh, that's what we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We're going to be in the story of Jesus's transfiguration. Uh, where he's going to reveal his glory to three of his disciples. Um, And it's so important uh, at this point in the story, because um, if you're just joining us, we're at this point in the Gospel of Mark where uh, the disciples are growing in their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, Last week, we saw that Jesus um, called them that, hey, if you want to truly live, if you want to flourish and find freedom and fullness of life, then you're going to have to die to your own leadership, your own way of doing things. Leave that behind and come and follow me into the fullness of life. Um, And uh, that is a huge ask. Jesus knows that this is counterintuitive to the way that we think about our life. And so what he's going to do in today's text is he's going to lead these guys up onto the mountain to give them the ultimate mountaintop experience um, and to really show them this counterintuitive way of dying in order to live really does lead to the life and the glory that we long for. Uh, And this story has been captured in the scripture so that 2,000 years later, you and I, um, as we come in here, and we're still processing last week to to die in order to truly live so that you and I can see Jesus' glory in this text just like these men saw it. Um, And it's captured so that we would not only just see it and learn some information, but be moved by it, and that this might shape and give us new perspective on our discipleship to Jesus today. You ready? All right, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says this. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, that's the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So that's tagging off of the end of last week's message. He says, hey, some of you, you're going to get a glimpse of this glory and power I'm promising you. Well, when's that going to happen? Verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So this story is known as the Transfiguration. And uh, Mark tells us this takes place six days after the conversation we looked at last week. So this rarely happens when we're preaching through the Bible, but we're following the timeline almost exactly. One week after what we looked at last week, Jesus takes the three guys he's closest with, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them on a backpacking trip. He leads them up onto a high mountain. Now, some of you, you enjoy backpacking. That's because you're godly. Um, I used to really enjoy, this is something I used to do a lot of, and then I married a woman whose uh, vision of being outdoorsy is a hotel room with the view of uh, nature instead of a view of the city. Um, But then I thought, no, 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 I just have to have kids and we'll turn the tide. But then I had one daughter and another and another. And so you can just pray for me because I think the closest I'll get to camping is reading about it in the Bible here. Uh, And some of you are like, Karen, you're like, that's a win. Why would you want to go camping? I don't know, because our Lord and Savior Jesus did it. I I don't know. I'm just trying to be godly. I don't know. Uh, The the point is, uh, Jesus leads these guys up on a high mountain. And mountains in the Bible are places of great revelation. And this text is no exception. So Mark tells us on this high mountain, Jesus is transfigured before them. Uh, Now, that word transfigured, if you grew up in church, you're like, oh, yes, I know this story. I can picture the flannel graph. Um, But if you don't have a background in church, like, that's a weird word. It is a weird word. Uh, So I want to share with you, because it is a rare word. It's not only weird, it's a rare word. Um, It's, I think, why our Bible translators use this unique word. It only shows up four times in the entire New Testament. Um, So I'm going to teach you a Greek word this morning. That way, uh, when you're at parties this week, you can just nerd out and show off your Bible knowledge. I don't know what kind of parties I'm envisioning you might be at, but just hang with me here. Uh, The word for transfigured is metamorpho. Can you all say that with me? Metamorpho. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis. It's uh, what what the word means is it means to change, um, to... I can't find the verb there, to to metamorphi. I don't know. It's where we get the word metamorphosis from. It means to change. That's what's underneath the English translation, transfigured. So what Mark says is Jesus gets up on this mountain and he is changed before their eyes. Um, This might help you if you just want to close your eyes and picture the scene, okay? Um, If you're more oriented like Karen, I'll try to give you some details because you're like, I don't know what it's like to go up a high mountain. I'm just kidding. Karen hikes all the time, by the way. She just doesn't stay on the mountain overnight like Peter wants to and like I want to. Um, But just picture the details here. Close your eyes. They're walking, they're hiking up a high mountain. Um, I envision that there is sweat going on. There is dust getting kicked up everywhere. They are dirty. It is awesome. And they are climbing up to the hikes. They're probably gassed. They're probably winded. Um, Their hair is definitely messed up at this point. I mean, it is just a dirty, hot mess. And they get to the top of the mountain, and they are panting for breath. And Mark says they look up at Jesus, and all of a sudden, the dirt is gone, the dust is gone, the sweat is gone. And they look at Jesus. And this is like the one time our flannel board Jesus is just blowing in the wind, hair all bright and white, looking so glorious. This is the one time that's actually biblically accurate. Jesus lived in the muck and the mire, but there was this one moment where for a moment on that mountain, he has changed before them. And it looks like his hair is freshly blow drying. 
Um, Mark tells us his clothes become white. Like not only the dust is gone, he says it's so radiant that nothing on earth could bleach them that white. It's like he's struggling for words to say it was otherworldly what happened on that mountain. There's this light and wholeness and fullness. It's just radiating from Jesus. Um, Matthew and Luke, who also tell us about this in their gospel accounts, they add that Jesus' face shone like the sun. So, So the picture we're getting when Jesus is transfigured is that there is this hot, brilliant, heavenly radiance, and it's just beaming from Jesus. And here are these guys covered in dirt, covered from the hike, and they look up, and Jesus is radiating with this otherworldly glow that nothing on earth could produce. Um, Now, the rabbis, uh, they have a word to describe what's going on here. Uh, They would use the term Shekinah glory, which if you have a charismatic background, you're like, okay, let's go. Uh, Shekinah glory is a term the rabbis would use. It's not a term that's actually found in the Bible, but it's a term that the rabbis kind of coined to describe these moments we do see throughout the Bible where God descends to his people and his glory is made manifest amongst his people. And so probably the main image that uh, we have in the Bible is right after the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, God descends on Mount Sinai. Remember, mountains are great places of revelation, so you should all go backpacking this summer. Um, uh, God descends on Mount Sinai, and his glory appears, and the rabbis would call that Shekinah glory. Um, What Shekinah glory is referring to is brightness, radiance, a type of light that will blind your eyes. And and I think that's the image that Mark's trying to say. That's what's going on here. The Shekinah glory of Yahweh that our fathers knew from of old and have told us all of a sudden that is radiating from Jesus on this mountain. Shekinah glory, the idea here is it's, it's blinding, but it's beautiful. And so there's this tension, I want to look into it, but if I look into it, it's going to, blind, it's going to burn my eyes out. It's otherworldly. And here on this mountain, the Shekinah glory that hadn't been seen in Israel for hundreds of years is now radiating from Jesus. And um, as if that was too subtle, at that moment, Mark says, hey, two visitors appear, Moses and Elijah. Now, if you were a first century Jew, you'd be freaking out at this moment, These were kind of the two central figures of the Old Testament. I mean, in addition to God, he's the main idea of the Bible. At a human level, there's two guys that first century Jews were really excited about. The first is Moses. Now, most of us, um, at least if you have a background in church, we probably know who Moses is, right? Uh, Or if you've seen like the movie, The Ten Commandments, which has, uh, depending on the iteration, varying levels of theological accuracy, but that's Moses, Moses is this leader that God raises up to deliver his people from slavery, to lead them out of oppression into Egypt, into freedom in the promised land. And after God raises them up and leads them out of Egypt, he meets with Moses on Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, he gives Moses the Old Testament law that says, okay, now that I've freed you for a relationship with me, here is how you can live in relationship with me. Here's what freedom and righteousness and justice and flourishing looks like. If you would just walk with me, here is the way. And so Moses was super famous because these laws, they really governed the life of the people of God for hundreds and hundreds of years, all the way up until this point. I mean, we've talked throughout the Gospel of Mark about the Mosaic Law several times. So, so they knew Moses. He's kind of a big deal. Um, but then there's Elijah, who, I don't know, um, 
In church today, we don't talk about Elijah as much, but in the first century, they would have been maybe even more geeked out about Elijah. Uh, And there's a simple reason for that. Uh, Here's a homework assignment for you. You're like, I'm at church. You're giving me homework? I don't know. Uh, This is up to you, between you and the Lord. If you want to see something cool, you go to page one of your New Testament, and you flip back one page. You're going to read the very end of the Old Testament. What the closing verses of the Old Testament say is God says, hey, don't worry. I'm going to come back. I'm going to fix it. That's the big storyline of the Bible that humans break things. God redeems things. And he says, right at the end of Malachi, verses 4 to 6, he says, hey, I'm going to come back and fix it. Don't forget my servant Moses and all the things I commanded him because that governs your life with me. And then he says in verse 5, and I will send Elijah before Moses. Before I come to fix the world, I will send Elijah and he will prepare for the greater prophet who's greater than Moses that will come and redeem the world. Um, In the story of the Old Testament, Elijah never actually, he died. He just got taken up into glory. And so the Old Testament ends with, you know that guy I just took away to be with me? I'm going to send him back right before I fix everything. He's going to be the messenger. So remember Moses, my servant, and watch for Elijah. And who's on the mountain here? Moses and Elijah. Mark is not a subtle man. He's making his point that everything the Old Testament looked forward to, that whole anticipation we have, here they are, these two central figures that the people of God really revolve their life around, these two central figures, especially Elijah, that they were waiting for, they're here on this mountain. I don't, I don't know if you could imagine how geeked out Peter, James, and John must be at this moment. But then what Mark tells us is these two central figures who have done mighty acts of God and been used mightily by God in the past, they're not the ones glowing. Jesus is. They're talking to Jesus. It's like they're all geeked out at Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are geeked out to talk to Jesus. And again, as if this is not enough, Shekinah glory coming from Jesus, the central figures of the Old Testament coming and talking with Jesus, as if that's not enough, then a cloud descends onto the mountain and a voice begins to speak. Um, I wanted to just read from Exodus. Uh, this would make the sermon way too long, so you can go and do this this week. If you read the story of God descending on Mount Sinai to speak to Israel after the Exodus, this reads exactly like that. A cloud descends, Shekinah glory, Moses is there, and a voice speaks from the cloud. And the voice that speaks from the cloud is the voice of God. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And I want you to notice that. He doesn't say, this is my beloved servant, which is how Malachi ends. Listen to my servant Moses. He says, this is my beloved son. He and I, we share something that no other human does. That you have these two great human figures on the mountain, Moses and Elijah, but somehow Jesus is greater than the greatest humans who have ever lived. And there it is, the voice of Yahweh speaks from the cloud, just as he had to the Israel's fathers. And he says, you know why he's greater than them? Because he is my beloved son. If you've ever wondered how good Jews like Peter, James, and John, who believed the Shema, that there is one God and he alone is to be worshipped, if you could ever wonder how these three guys who were really good Jews could go around after the death and resurrection of Jesus proclaiming, Jesus is God over all and worthy of our worship, these are the kinds of moments that begin 
to form that understanding in them. That there is a God in heaven and that there is God on earth, his beloved son. And somehow they are, um, they are of the same essence. These are terms that theologians would come to later to describe the Trinity. That there is one God in three persons. We have the Father and the Son in this moment. And they are beginning to see a glimpse of this. The Shekinah glory of Yahweh, it's radiating from Jesus. Yahweh's two main uh, prophets and preachers are pointing to Jesus, and the voice of the Father is giving glad approval to all of this. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The disciples on this mountain, they are seeing a glimpse of Jesus in his eternal and divine glory. A glory that uh, he says in the Gospel of John, John, one of these three guys, when he writes his Gospel, he records Jesus as saying, I had glory from before the foundations of the world with the Father. I've always been God. This isn't something new for me. This is a glory that Jesus has always enjoyed from the beginning of time or from before the beginning of time with the Father. It like begins to break our concepts of language. But what the Scriptures tell us is that when God, desiring to save us, sent his only son in the world to come and save us. Jesus added humanity to his divinity, and for a time, that divinity was veiled in flesh, as the old hymn says. And on this mountain, for just a moment, that veil is pulled back, and Peter, James, and John see the eternal glory that the Son has always shared with the Father. This beautiful, hot, otherworldly radiance, goodness, the one that the greatest leaders in human history are pointing to and saying, he is the one. And this glory, it makes an impression on these guys. I mean, they're they're, they're just taking it in. And and as they're taking it in, our our boy Peter, he speaks up. You got to love this guy. The Shekinah glory of the Lord, they're they're seeing something that that they were made for. And in that moment, Peter begins to speak up and he says, Jesus, let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then in comes the voice of the narrator. He didn't know what he was saying. He was out of his mind. He was terrified. Gotta love Peter. We said last week, he's ready, fire, aim. Some of you would be silent at that moment. Some of you are like Peter. And when you don't know what to say, you just start speaking. Jesus loves all kinds of people. I hope you can see that. There's three guys. Only one of them speaks up, okay? So no matter your personality type, God loves you, and he wants you to see his glory this morning. But Peter, he, he says, let's make three tents for you. But he doesn't know what he's saying. He's terrified. And I, I believe Mark says they were terrified. This is actually just coming to mind here. Let's, let, let's check me on that. Uh, for they were terrified. So all three of these guys, they're terrified. Now, you need to hear that word terrified through the lens of what the Bible says about the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 19.23, it says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. So, So the fear of the Lord, it's this idea of realizing there is a God who is bigger than me. It is not me. There is a reality beyond me that puts my life into perspective. And that's what's going on for these guys here. They are on the mountain. They are seeing the glory of the Lord on this mountain. And they are experiencing the fear of the Lord that begins to put their life into perspective. It leads them into life. Peter, he's so overwhelmed by this picture of a glorious God that is so far beyond his own understanding. He just blurts it out like, hey, can I set up camp here? 
Like, he, he offers to build tents. I think what he's saying is, like, Jesus, I don't ever want to leave. I want to live right here. I, I don't want to leave this moment. This is amazing. This is beautiful. Why would I ever want to go down the mountain? Let's set up shop and let's live here forever. Um, now, uh, C.S. Lewis has a book that I think really helps us understand why Peter doesn't want to leave. Um, he has a book that helps us understand everything, frankly. But if I could commend one book to you, it would be The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Um, in this book, uh, Lewis says that we all long for glory. And, and I think really this book, it's not written about the transfiguration, but I think it helps us understand why Peter is just so overwhelmed as he beholds the glory coming from Jesus. So in The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says, we all long for glory. Um, no matter your background, if you're religious, not spiritual, whatever, we all long for glory. And though we might not call it that, this is why we are moved when we see a beautiful sunset or when we eat a juicy piece of steak or when we, yeah, that'll get an amen, or when we hear a song that moves us or um, for you literary folks, when you read a story that just grabs you. Um, or when you, uh, if you're out backpacking, you look up at the sky at night and see the stars. Now, if you do that here, you won't see much because we're in the city. This is why Jesus loves backpacking, and you should too. Um, but seriously, this is, this is what Lewis is saying in this book. He said there are these moments in life when we get a glimpse of a beauty that is beyond us. And in that moment, we can feel caught up in something that is beyond ourselves. Um, like a couple of weeks ago, I went to uh, the first A's game I've been to uh, since before all of this started, and uh, it was amazing. I, I walked out, and when I saw the crowd, I almost got emotional. Like, I just hadn't been around that many people. And, um, it, like, I'm, I'm there, and, and this game was a moment of glory because I'm sitting there, and it's a, it, it was at the Giants Stadium, but it was really an A's game because, come on. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I would say it's maybe like two to one Giants to A's fans in the crowd. Um, but the A's won this day. And um, when that bat cracked and the ball flew past the shortstop, and 20,000 people got up and were like, yes! In that moment, I felt caught up in something beyond me. Have you ever felt that? Lewis says, that is glory that feeling of being caught up in something beyond us. That is the weight and the beauty and the meaning that you and I long for. And he goes on to say, like, hey, if the books that we love, if the music that we love, um, or if I could just modernize it, if watching 20-somethings throw and hit around a ball on a field with 20, 40,000 other people can make us feel this way, how much more would it feel that way to be in the presence of the being that spoke all of that into existence? And that is what is happening for Peter, for James, and John here. All of that is tied up in the words, and he was transfigured before them. They are seen the glory that they were made to behold, the greater thing that they were meant to get caught up in, they are taking it in. And here's the big idea in all of this. Jesus is the glory we long for. 
He's the glory that we long for. He's not merely a shadow of the glory, like Moses and Elijah. Like you could read Moses and say, he's talking about something great. You could read Elijah and go, he's talking about something great. Um, He's not just a shadow of it, like a good steak. Like some of you became Christians because you cut in and finally it wasn't overburnt. You could taste the meat and you were like, my goodness, these taste buds must have come from beyond me. I love and worship you, God. You must be real. Like there are shadows of the glory of God in the world. But Jesus, he's not merely a shadow. He's not merely a mighty prophet or teacher pointing to the glory that we were made for. He is the source of it. That every good thing in life ultimately flows from his nature and from his character. And I think so often we get this backwards. So often we think there's glory over here I long for and Jesus is God, which must mean he's powerful enough to give me the things I long for if I would just obey him enough to put him in my debt, then he'll give me the glory I want over here. And so we live the Christian life longing for glories outside of God, longing for the glory of our promotion, longing for the glory of our vacation, longing for the glory of our children, finally getting to the age where you don't have to say, don't touch that, don't go there, don't do that, where they can live on their own. And some of you, you have kids living on their own, and you're like, I long for the glory of when I don't have to get the phone call and say, don't do that, don't do that. See, none of these things are bad that we would long for a vacation, that we would long for our children to grow up and to flourish. None of these things are bad to long for a fulfilling and meaningful career, but they are not ultimately the glory that we were made for. Jesus is. Those things are at best shadows through which we are meant to experience something of who he is and how he has loved us. And if we live our life chasing the shadows, never seeing through them to the source of the glory himself, we will be miserable and we won't know why. And in fact, if Jesus loves you, he won't give you those shadows until you come to him. And so you might walk in here really frustrated with Jesus. Like I did everything I was supposed to. I read my Bible every day this week and yet it's still not going well with my kids. And and I think the point of what we're meant to see on this mountain is that Jesus is the glory that we are longing for and everything else is but a shadow. It's a pointer. It's a lesser glory. And you and I will never be whole until we can gaze through those shadows to the one who is the substance of it all. Peter is gazing at the substance on this mountain. He's gazing at the glory that he was made for, and he is speechless. It is blowing him away. He, he doesn't ever want to leave. He wants to set up camp. He's like, this mountain, I'm never stepping foot off of it. And it's understandable because this is the glory he was made for, but at this point in the Gospel of Mark, it's ultimately misguided because Jesus still has a mission, and so do these guys. This was not the moment to enter into glory. This was the glimpse of glory to keep them going. And so he leads them down the mountain to continue on his mission. We read this in verse 9. He says, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, 
of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So, the, so they're coming down this mountain, and, and Jesus says to them, don't tell anyone what you saw up here until I rise from the dead. Uh, in other words, it's like he's saying, hey, do you remember that whole uh, the Messiah has to suffer and die and rise again thing that you didn't like six days ago? Um, that whole thing, that's still happening. My glory, it doesn't negate it. It actually demands it. Jesus knows that he has to die in our place for our sins if you and I are going to get in on this glory that we see on the mountain. But uh, Peter, he still doesn't like this. He, he says, Jesus, how, how can you die after all of that? Like, like you, you've got the Shekinah glory, just like when Caesar comes for you, just kapa. Um, how is this not the end? I saw Elijah. I know my Bible. I've read Malachi chapter 4. I know that Elijah comes right before the end. How is this not the end, Jesus? How are you going to have to die and rise again, whatever that means? Here's what I want you to notice, though. Peter still doesn't like this, but do you notice that his response is improving? He doesn't take Jesus aside and rebuke him, assuming that he knows better than Jesus and talk down to Jesus. He asks a question. And that is growth. Some of you, you're not oriented like Peter. You're like, well, he should grow more. Okay, growth doesn't always happen at the rate that you expect it, but this is growth from our boy Peter here. He asked Jesus, he says, I don't understand it. Why? Can you help me? See, faith doesn't mean you don't have questions. It means that you bring your questions to God and you let him be God. You ask your questions in his presence and you wrestle with that. But you don't tell God, here's who you have to be for me to believe in you. You, you come to God humbly and say, you're God, but I don't understand this. Can, can we have a conversation? I don't get it. Can you help me? But now I'm getting into next week's sermon. I can't get there. Here's the point. Peter's improving. He is growing. And in his growth, we see the effects of beholding the glory of Jesus. See, Jesus, he's not the only one who's described as transfigured or metamorphosed in the Bible. I said it comes up four times. Two times that word is describing this moment here where Jesus is revealed in his eternal glory before the disciples. But two of the occasions that this word comes up in the New Testament, it's actually referring to believers, uh, to, to you and to I. I mean, listen to this. this is, here, uh, let me read you one example. Um, I'll read you half the examples right now, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this. And we all, he's talking to the church, believers in Jesus Christ here, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, that's our word, metamorpho, we're being metamorphosed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Um, now, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is talking about um, being changed into the image of Jesus. He's saying that God is committed to making you and me who trust in Jesus look more and more like Jesus. And in 3.18, he tells us how that transformation occurs. He says, as we behold, as we look at, gaze at, look at, just drink it in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are being transformed. Action is being done to us by the Holy Spirit who transforms, who metamorphoses us into the image of Jesus. The point is that um, you too can be transfigured. 
You too can be transformed. You too can become more radiant, more whole, more free to where your friends and your family would be looking up at you and they're like, where did all the gunk go on your life? And, and I don't mean to say that you'll be perfect in this life. I love how honest the Apostle Paul is in 2 Corinthians. From one degree of glory to another, meaning it's going to happen in steps. It might happen slower than you want. But just like Jesus on this mountain, his appearance was changed before them. Your life can change. And we're told the way that this happens is not by striving, but by beholding. If I could just lay that idea on the ground for you, what he's saying is if you are a Christian, you have an entirely new hope for change. You can become a more loving spouse, but the way that you become a more loving spouse is not by focusing on um, how can I repress my own selfish desires? How can I bite my tongue so I don't say that? Definitely don't say that. And and try to white knuckle your obedience. How do I do what they asked me to do? Check it off the list here. The way that you become a more loving spouse is not by any of those things. It's not by striving. It's not by trying to be a better spouse. According to 2 Corinthians 3.18, the way that you become a more loving spouse is by getting your eyes up and looking at Jesus and beholding his glory and how he has loved you. And there's something that is so amazing about that glory that it can't help but begin to transform who you are. That as you behold it, you become transformed just like Peter from one degree of glory into another. That means you can become a more faithful friend. But the the way that you become a more faithful friend is not by going, okay, I really need to respond to text messages when they come in. I shouldn't go dark on my friends for days at a time. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that. It doesn't come through shitting on yourself. It comes through getting your eyes up and looking to Jesus. And as you behold the glory of Jesus, it changes your heart, it changes your disposition and what you want to do, and it changes your perspective. It puts your life into perspective where you begin to think of others, not only of yourself. See, what we're seeing here is the way that we are transfigured, it's not by striving, by trying to become something that we're not. It's by looking to Jesus and his glory and how he has loved us And the life he has purchased for us and given to us by grace, it's as we look at those things that that reality begins to take over our life. It begins to transform us just like Peter did. It changes us from one degree of glory to another. And again, what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 is that as we behold the glory of Jesus, the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, will increasingly transform us from one degree of reflecting that great glory to another. And the purpose is, if you go on and read in 2 Corinthians, the purpose of all of this is so that our lives might radiate the glory of God increasingly in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our workplace, that wherever we go, people might see that Jesus is real. Jesus is good. Jesus is the glory I long for. Look at what he can do for him. Are you kidding me? Maybe I'll try Jesus if he can change him that way. We are meant to have our lives radiate the glory of God wherever we go so that wherever we go, we're becoming new creations by the power of the Holy Spirit and that through us radiate the light and the goodness of God. Not coming from us like Jesus, it's coming from him because it's God, but we become, if Jesus is the sun, we become the moon and his glory, it radiates and it beams off of us and we reflect it in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Is that the life you want? 
I mean, it's the life I want. And so if you're with me there going, gosh, I can be changed and I don't have to fix myself. I, I look to Jesus and Jesus can change me. Yes, please sign me up. Well, then the question that this whole story asks of you and of I is then, okay, well, what are you beholding then? As you look out over your life, what are you focused on? What are you spending your time looking at? What are you spending your time engaging in, investing in? Because, see, I think a lot of the times we don't experience anything I just talked about because we are content with lesser glories. We are content with, we are like eight or nine days away from vacation here, our family. And I'm like, we just got to get there. Just got to make it to the finish line. Again, I'm not anti-vacation. I fully intend to take one, okay? But if that is what we are content with is the ultimate glory, that ain't going to transform us. That's just going to put too much pressure on my vacation that I'm going to be miserable to be with on my vacation. Um, see, if we are satisfied with lesser glories, going, if I could just get a promotion at work, it might make you work harder in the short term, but it will make you a less fun teammate and coworker in the long run. If we can just focus on if I could just get my kids out of the house, if I could just get them to be a responsible adult, you might be able to control and manipulate their behavior when they are under your roof, but they will go buck wild the second they get out. If we are content with lesser glories and build our life around that, I think it's the reason we're not being transformed because we're not beholding the glory of the Lord. We're beholding the glory of our trip, the glory of our kids, the glory of our job. And again, like I said, none of those are bad. We're just meant to seek through those to the glory of the Lord. And, and so my question is, um, what is your life focused on? And are you, um, the good things that are in your life, are you seeing through them to the glory of the Lord? Are you seeing through them and going, thank you for giving me this, Jesus? Like, like I said earlier, you cut into a bite of steak. And if you're a vegetarian, I apologize. Envision a really juicy piece of fruit if you're into that. Um, and when it hits your taste buds, do you go, wow, thank you for giving me these taste buds, God? Like, way to go. You could have given us like bland bread and water. But you gave us cows and uh, strawberries and all of these things. And some of you, you're like, who lives like that? That is the life we will have in eternity. I, I don't believe that heaven is sitting around on a harp, uh, on a cloud, playing the harp. I think it is living life to the full, seeing through every good shadow in this world that is restored without evil, going, Jesus, you're awesome. This is so good. Hey, give me some seconds on that. It's drinking really good grape juice to the glory of Jesus, however you ferment that. It's all of these things going, thank you, Jesus. This is so good. This is the mountain that we were made for and we will ultimately get to. And, and I, I will tell you this, I, I was thinking about this this week. I am a more life-giving person when I am beholding the glory of Jesus and looking through the shadows and seeing his glory. Care, ask Karen after service. She can attest to this. Uh, I am a more life-giving person when my gaze is up, when I am seeing through the good things to the giver of those things. Seeing um, maybe in the hard things, the God who loves me in spite of the hard things and went through a very hard thing to make me his. 
See, I'm a more life-giving person when I'm beholding the glory of the Lord. You might say that as Chad Francis beholds the glory of the Lord, he is being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And all of this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, who lives in him, and is working this new creation in him because of the work of Jesus Christ. And the same is true for you. that Jesus' glory is just that good. You cannot gaze upon him and remain unchanged. And, and, and you might hear that and go, well, that, that's really easy for those guys who like looked out their eyeballs and saw the glory of God right in front of their face. But what about me? Like Peter, he had an advantage over us. He got to see this whole thing happen on the mountain. Um, actually, if you read 2 Peter chapter 1, he's going to recount this story at the end of his life and say, you have an advantage over him. I'll just give you another homework assignment, 2 Peter 1. It's an awesome chapter of the Bible. But he goes on um, to make a point that I'm about to make, and that is that this was only the glimpse of glory. This mountain, it was not the final revelation of God to his people. See, if you continue in the Gospel of Mark, which I hope you will with us, what we are going to see is that one day Jesus will ascend another hill. And on that hill of Calvary, everything he predicted will come true of him. He will suffer in our place, die in our place for our sins. And it is on the cross as he is suffering and dying like Peter has no category for. It is on that hill. Jesus has a very, very bad day. And on that hill, as he breathes his last, there is a Roman soldier who looks up and sees the glory of Jesus on the cross. The Roman soldier sees what Peter, James, and John saw. He concludes, spoiler alert, he says, this is the Son of God. The point is this, if you want to see the glory of Jesus, you didn't have to be on that mountain 2,000 years ago. You have to look to the cross because that is where his glory is ultimately revealed. It is in the death of the Son of God that his glory is revealed. It's as the soldier looks up and sees the only righteous one dying in the place of wicked sinners. Something about that discrepancy, a righteous one dying for the unrighteous, causes this pagan Roman to say, truly this is the Son of God. He sees the glory on that hill, and the same is true of you and me. And in fact, that chapter in 2 Corinthians we were looking at, it's actually comparing the old covenant under Moses. They had a shadow of glory. It pointed to what Jesus would do, but what he's saying, the reason he says all this comes from the Spirit, he says that you and I are new covenant believers. We live under the new covenant, under the old covenant. God revealed himself to prophets and leaders who would speak to the people. He spoke through mediators. In the new covenant, he speaks directly to all of his people because of the work of Jesus who dies in our place for our sins to make us his children in spite of the ways that we have failed this week. The Holy Spirit can indwell our hearts no matter how we are still moving from one degree of glory to another because that sin you struggled with this week, it was paid for on that hill. And so now filled with the Holy Spirit, he can again and again every day move in such a way to reveal the glory of Jesus directly to you. You don't need to be on that hill. According to Peter, you have something better than that hill. You have the firm and trustworthy word of God and the spirit of God inside of you, if you've trusted in Jesus, who will open your eyes to the glory of the risen Jesus as we look at the cross and consider these things. 
And so the point is that you can have your own mountaintop experience this morning. Um, and, and it's not just here in this room. You can have your own mountain top experience tomorrow morning and tonight and everywhere in between. If you've trusted in Jesus, you belong to him. His spirit is in you, and he is working from one degree of glory to another to reveal the fullness of what he has done for you. And all of this happens as we look to the cross and see the grace of Jesus. All of this happens as we look to the empty tomb and we see that death has been turned backwards, that new creation is on the march, that the Spirit of God is at work renewing this world. And one day he will renew this world completely where we will live in glory forever, where we will live on the mountaintop forever and say, thank you, Jesus. You're awesome, Jesus. This is so cool. And until then, your job and my job is to come directly to the mountain, behold the glory of Jesus, be transformed, and to go out like Peter, James, and John and witness to the fact that our death-defeating king is alive, that there is grace in his name, and anybody can get in on this. And that as we do that, that our lives begin to radiate the glory of God in our neighborhoods and workplace. And we see this community turn absolutely upside down in such a way that people will look in and go, Jesus is real and Jesus is good. And that is the life that you and I get to lead until the day he brings us home to glory. Your future is glory if you're in Christ. You get to enjoy the glory now. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to spend some time just beholding the glory of Jesus this morning so we can go out and radiate and proclaim that glory. Jesus, you, you are the king of glory the psalmist spoke about. You are the weight, the beauty, the meaning that we all long for. Um, and so I, I ask this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, to open our eyes, to see your beauty, to see your grace, to see who you are and what you've done and how you are greater than any lesser glory that we could attach our lives to. Um, for those who believe that this morning, I help you would, um, I ask that you would help us to see through everything in our life to where you are to taste more of your glory this morning. For those who are not sure, they're going, ah, I'm not sure about this Jesus. I pray that you would make new Christians, that by the power of your spirit, you would open eyes, that we might proclaim with one voice this morning, you are worthy of our praise. So help us now as we seek to respond to your word. In your beautiful name I ask, amen.